This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the summer of 2017, and let's hope the rest of the summer isn't as hot as the start. As we speak into the microphone, there's estimates of temperatures in the 108 degree range in the next few days. That would calculate to about 42 degrees for those of you stuck in countries using the inferior Celsius system. And of course, we like being provocative on this program, but what, but better, what better way to start than by insulting the system used by most of the world to measure temperatures? But because Radio Parallax likes to always be the iconoclast, we have defended and will continue to defend the Fahrenheit system of measurement of body temperatures and outdoor temperatures. Since every degree in Fahrenheit is more precise than a degree in Celsius, we like it better and will continue to rib people stuck in other countries using the metric system. And yes, we grant you that the metric system in many applications is vastly superior to the old imperial system. And for that reason, people that use it like to look down their nose at the United States of America and point out that it is joined only by, I believe, Liberia and Burma <laughs> using the old system of units. But doggone it, we like to call a spade a spade and identify things that we believe to be true, even if they run against the popular notions, and therefore, we're starting out today's program in defense of the Fahrenheit method of measuring temperatures. And if this puts you in some kind of a fighting mood, we suggest you go down to the local pub and have a pint or two. We do want to note that because Mr. Millen and I are so pressed for time and expect to be so over much of the summer, that, uh, well, the programs are, well, I hate to use the term, but we may consider them, at least for the next few weeks, as Radio Parallax Light. And I do want to note that having listened to a lot of what is on the airwaves, <laughs> uh, which I was doing so the last few days, working out in the yard with the radio on, I would say that even Radio Parallax Light is probably head and shoulders above a lot of what passes for broadcasting. That is our firm opinion, and we believe you may to some degree share that because, well, you're listening, aren't you? Now, last week's program, yours truly had just gotten back from a trip to the continent, and actually before the continent, to the Azor Islands, out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which was quite an interesting little adventure for yours truly, being that uh, I have an ancestry from a couple of the Azor Islands. And I may not be proper grammar, but, but it, was, it was fun to go visit the islands of St. George and Terceira, where my paternal grandmother and grandfather respectively originated. While traveling, I was pretty much out of the loop on a lot of what passes for the blah, blah, blah of the news cycle, and I think I was a better person for it, frankly, which certainly gives one pause before you come back and gather a bunch of material up and decide you're going to talk about what's happening out there. Now, in an ideal world, we'd be interviewing some of the authors that are writing some great books out there and producing some wonderful documentaries, etc., etc., or just speaking with experts, but... That's hard to do without a lot of preparation, and for the next few weeks, you're probably not going to hear a lot of that here on Radio Parallax, but hopefully we'll make up for that by August as we prepare for the great American solar eclipse of August 21st, which we would remind you 
dear listeners, that you really should take some time off and go up to Oregon or Idaho or Wyoming or someplace in the U.S. where the center line passes and take this spectacle in. This is the first time in 40 years that a solar eclipse is going to hit the mainland U.S., which is hard to believe. But it's true, except for the eclipse that in 1991 hit the big island of Hawaii. It was back in the 70s when uh, we were last visited by the moon's umbra. Mr. Millen and I planned to report on that event for you in August, and we hope to have quite an assemblance of, uh, of, of cohorts to round out our reporting. There's a possibility we may hook up with the good people of This Week in Science and see if we can't uh, do some sort of a joint venture there. That would be fun. At any rate, with our goal in mind of a more relaxed sort of radio parallax over the summer months, we will um, turn the clock back to being over in Europe and seeing some sort of a headline that I, I really couldn't make any sense out of. A word showed up that was very bizarre. I didn't know what it meant. And of course, as so often happens in the news cycle, the reporting on it will act as if you already know about what they're talking about. And if you don't already know what they're talking about, then you sort of read it and give up. In this case, what I noticed was some blather about the word kofefe, C-O-V-F-E-F-E. When I got back here to the U.S., I learned that apparently President Trump, as is his wont, sent out a tweet at around 12.06 a.m. that apparently read, despite the constant negative press, Kofefe, and then went silent. And I guess the next morning he followed up with, who can figure out the true meaning of Kofefe? Well, if not, if not you, Mr. President, certainly not us. And we do need to talk a little about a little bit about uh, President Donald Trump on today's program, and thus we shall do so. But before we talk about the chief tantrum thrower, I would like to uh, to uh, well, actually, I don't have the quote in front of me, so I can't give you the direct quote. But I want to refer to the fact that Oliver Stone, uh, after doing a series of interviews with Vladimir Putin, aired some of that on uh, June 12th on Showtime, which I'm sorry to say I did not see. If you did see these interviews of Vladimir Putin by Oliver Stone, please give us some feedback by dropping us a line at info at Radio Parallax. Um, what struck me about the whole thing was that in promoting this, Oliver Stone appeared on the Colbert show, or whatever the hell it's called. Yes, I suppose it's the late show. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that was David Letterman's program. Whatever Colbert is putting out there is not the late show. The reason I have that opinion is because David Letterman had talent and David Letterman was funny. But according to sources uh, on the program, Colbert asked Oliver Stone a question about Vladimir Putin's influencing of the U.S. elections, and Stone shot back with, why don't you take a look at uh, the Israeli influencing of U.S. elections? Evidently, a flustered Colbert responded with, well, well, well I'll ask you about that when, when you do a documentary about, you know, about that. But uh, if you were watching the show that night, you didn't see even that much of the exchange because the network decided to cut it out completely. Yes, apparently the suggestion that uh, the Israelis have influenced the U.S. election is so hot that you have to censor it. I don't know. Oliver Stone, uh, like so many people on the left, is extremely skeptical that there is anything to this tale of Russian meddling in the U.S. election. We take the position on this program that there's a lot of smoke here and... We suspect at the bottom of it, there's some fire. Now, are there some misdirection plays going on? Well, 
God, there has to be. And, and it's a moment like this where we like to pause and realize that we don't have any pipeline to classified information. We don't have any inside track on the true story, such as it is. If there ever is a quote-unquote true story. But, you know, we're just a couple of guys in a radio studio. In defense of what we do, I would say that we have tended to take a skeptical view about what is peddled out there and made an effort to get to the bottom of it on many occasions. And I think we have succeeded to some degree, at least on some occasions. But really, how can one know? There's a lot of comparisons being made right now between Donald Trump and Richard Nixon, you know, the firing of people, the apparent effort to divert investigations into wrongdoing, what appears to be some sort of cover-up. And yet, when we look back with the benefit of hindsight as to what transpired during the Nixon presidency leading up to his resignation, the only U.S. president to resign, we have to note that a lot of it is still very mysterious. The House of Representatives voted on five measures to, uh, I forget the term exactly, but five measures that would have impeached Nixon. Three of them passed, and he was headed for a trial in the U.S. Senate. But since he thought his chances looked pretty grim and looked like he was going to be the first president removed from office, and the clarification, of course, is getting impeached doesn't mean you're removed from office. It just means the Senate has cast votes on whether you will or will not. The two presidents that have faced impeachment, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, both escaped the disgrace of being removed from the presidency. It might be worth editorializing that in both cases, the president was pretty much railroaded. But that is a topic for another day. But my point is, if we can't look back at Nixon and all of the intricacies of what took place surrounding Watergate, etc., um, how can we presume to have any idea what the hell is going on in Washington right now? Well, we frankly admit, we don't know. But we're going to make some guesses. That's fair enough, isn't it? I do find it absolutely fascinating to note that people are asking up front, Donald Trump, is he unfit for office? It might be good to summarize some of the comments um, made about President Trump as were collected by The Week magazine, starting with that of David Brooks, writing in the New York Times. He said, there can no longer be any doubt our nation is being led by a child. Said Brooks, the common thread linking Trump's sharing of highly classified intelligence with Russia and his firing of FBI Director James Comey is the president's impulsiveness and sheer immaturity. Trump reportedly blabbed top-secret information to the Russian officials visiting the Oval Office, not for strategic reasons, but just to impress them, like a seven-year-old boy desperate for the approval of those he admires. Said Brooks, he fired Comey because, as he admitted in an interview, he got tired of seeing that showboat on TV talking about the Russian investigation. Sounding off on the same theme, and Applebaum in the WashingtonPost.com said, none of these disastrous decisions was part of a deliberate plan. Each one was made because of the president's willful ignorance, impulsiveness, and inexperience. But can anyone really be surprised? Last August, 50 Republican national security experts warned that the ill-informed, thin-skinned Trump, quote, lacks the character, 
values, and experience, unquote, to lead the nation. Nearly four months into his disastrous experiment, it's clear they were right. Writing in Vox.com, David Roberts said, There is clearly something wrong with Trump. His chaotic, scandal-plagued few months in office have exposed him as an extreme narcissist, haunted by a gnawing sense of inadequacy and driven by his hunger for adulation, admiration, and reinforcement for his hypersensitive ego. Ouch. Denied it, he becomes incredibly vengeful. Trump has no real agenda or core beliefs except a hunger to dominate others. No one can trust him. He is a raging fire of need shaped by a lifetime of entitlement with the emotional maturity and intention span of a six-year-old. Andrew Sullivan in nymag.com said, to put it more simply, the president is flat out off his rocker. Then we have what Tony Schwartz had to say in the Washington Post. Keep in mind, Tony Schwartz is the guy that wrote The Art of the Deal for Trump. Said Schwartz, I see no difference between the Trump of today and of 30 years ago when I wrote The Art of the Deal for him. Then, as now, he was a desperately needy guy who saw every human encounter as a contest he had to win by any means necessary and damn the consequences. You know, there, there, really, there really seems to be a recurring theme here. But just to pile on, we have the nytimes.com commentary by Ross Douthat, who said, whatever the state of Trump's mental health, he just isn't up to the job. Even his inner circle now report a constant struggle to keep him focused on the task at hand and to curb his self-destructive impulses as if they were stewards for a syphilitic emperor. Noted Ross, the 25th Amendment to the Constitution provides a mechanism for removing a president who, quote, is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, unquote, and it's time for Congress to apply that remedy. But countering these views, to a degree, we have Charles Cook writing in nationalreview.com. And wouldn't you expect a countering view from nationalreview.com? We would. (laughs) Said Mr. Cook... I agree that Trump is unfit for the presidency, but added, for Washington elites to depose him on such a nebulous grounds would enrage the tens of millions of Americans who voted Trump into office. They'd see it not without justification as a coup, and the results would be rage and turmoil, the likes of which we have not seen in a while. I just like the opening line. A guy writing for nationalreview.com admitting, I agree that Trump is unfit for the presidency but we just can't do anything about it. It would disappoint so many voters. I don't know, I didn't want to get lost in Trump land, but I guess it's unavoidable. There's a lot of people putting a lot of stock in Robert Mueller heading an investigation into the Russian connection. Former FBI director Robert S. Mueller III. But luckily for me, I'm friends with Peter Dale Scott, and I did observe what Peter posted on his Facebook page about while he was repeating what others had to say about Mueller, which was that when he was a federal prosecutor back in the day and they were looking into the shenanigans of the BCCI, Mueller apparently didn't give it his best shot. And if you've forgotten all about the BCCI, and chances are you have, dear listener, we would remind you that it was the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. The BCCI first emerged on the world scene uh, in the late 70s, during the Carter administration. In fact, a good friend of Jimmy Carter's, banker Bert Lance, 
was evidently peddling his friendship with the President of the United States. And some people interested in that connection were the founders of the BCCI, in this case, Aga Hassan Abedi, a Pakistani. Back in the 70s, the BCCI was said to be the fastest-growing bank in the world. Its assets had grown from $200 million in 1972 to more than $2 billion in 1977. Quoting now from Craig Unger in his excellent book, House of Bush, House of Saud, which I highly recommend, Unger says, BCCI's ascendancy was also due to business practices that were highly unusual in the staid world of banking. Noted Unger, other banks gave toaster ovens to new depositors. The BCCI provided prostitutes. Loans of millions of dollars were granted merely on the basis of a simple request. Back in the day when Mr. Abedi was meeting with Bert Lance, and it was pretty much agreed that you can't really be a global bank, an international bank, without some sort of presence in the United States, well, maybe Bert Lance's National Bank of Georgia could benefit from some new management. Enter Saudi billionaire Gaith Farhan. Mr. Abedi told Bert Lance back in the day that Mr. Farhan might be just the person to take over the NBG. Should be noted that the dapper Farhan was the son of a private physician to King Abdul Aziz. We would hasten to add that, as was the late Saudi billionaire arms dealer and former Chico resident. Adnan Khashoggi, whose obituary we will report on before we close shop today. hope I'm pronouncing his name right, but it's Farayan, I guess it is. His education included undergraduate work at Stanford and an MBA from the Harvard Business School. We do assume he paid better, we do assume he paid better attention than class than did George W. Bush. We do not have time and would not have time if we devoted 10 hours to it to unravel the complexities surrounding the BCCI, but do note that it jumped from seeking out connections with the Carter administration to connections with some Republican oil people, including future Secretary of State James Baker and future President George W. Bush. The BCCI would later be involved in some of these shenanigans involving the takeover of Harkin Energy, which benefited future President George W. Bush. And doggone it, I just can't resist this one quote from Craig Unger about that little venture by uh, the Saudis. Unger noted that even if Harkin Energy had not had its liabilities, for Saudi billionaires whose wealth came from the biggest oil reserves in the world, investing in Harkin was at best truly a case of selling coals to Newcastle and ice to the Eskimos. But of course, what the BCCI was interested in was not the oil drilling operations of some Penny Annie operation out of Texas, but influence with some powerful people who might in the future become even more powerful. And, you know, I need to climb out of that rat hole. Let's just say that, you know, how good a prosecutor Mueller is going to be, well, has yet to be seen. There's a lot of folks out there that think that Mueller is going to be a tough cop and that this is bad news for Trump. But the question is, to what degree is Robert Mueller acting as an agent of the deep state. And we sure as hell don't have an answer to that, but we're going to keep following the story, as will all of you. And since we're talking about the Saudis, and I guess we are, the richest family in the world, the House of Saud, which is interested in influencing American politicians and our government, 
have made a real effort to bring Donald J. Trump on board. And it appears they're succeeding. Noted Bloomberg.com a few weeks ago. Saudi Arabia greeted President Trump and U.S. CEOs last week with agreements for deals worth hundreds of billions of dollars as Riyadh looks to develop its economy beyond oil. Some 30 CEOs of major U.S. companies traveled to Riyadh with Trump and inked more than $300 billion worth of potential deals and investments. Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund committed $20 billion to investment firm Blackstone Group, and the state-owned oil company Saudi Aramco announced a wide-ranging deal with GE worth $15 billion to develop joint ventures in power, generation, and digital technologies. Apparently, the Saudis are looking forward to the future and realizing that we may run out of oil one day and we better have something else in the pipeline. In relation to this, the king of Saudi Arabia has, as of this week, named a new successor. Evidently, Mohammed bin Salman is quite a mover and shaker in the kingdom. And his pet project is getting the Saudis invested in other things besides petroleum. Now, it should be noted that the House of Saud was pretty mad at uh, Al Jazeera, which is oftentimes an excellent news reporting agency, but they didn't like the fact that it kept carping about their bad behavior. And since Al Jazeera is based in Qatar, well, all of a sudden, Qatar is being shunned by the Saudis. Qatar is, of course, a peninsula projecting into the Persian Gulf off of the mainland of Arabia, meaning that a boycott from the Saudis could be very harmful. It has been alleged that Qatar, or Qatar, or whatever, whatever pronunciation you prefer, has been funding terrorists around the world. Now, the idea that the Saudis are pointing a finger at Qatar for funding terrorism efforts around the world, well... That's interesting. I mean, for those of us who recall the 15 hijackers on 9-11 who were from Qatar, we have to say that complaint certainly carries a lot of weight. Writing about this latest episode in Yeni Safak in Turkey was Ibrahim Kargul. And yes, I only know about this because I read the week. But Mr. Safak said that the Saudis, in going after Qatar, are just doing America's bidding. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure which came first, the chicken or the egg. But he claims that it's no coincidence that a matter of weeks after President Trump was feeded with sword dancing in Saudi Arabia, a blockade fell on Qatar and ISIS launched twin terrorist attacks in Tehran, killing 17. Said Mr. Safak, the U.S. is trying to provoke a war between the Shiite and Sunni Muslim superpowers, Iran and Saudi Arabia, so that it can take advantage of the chaos and plunder the region's oil and natural gas wealth. No country is going to be able to stay outside this conflict. The Americans will make us choose sides. Are you with Tehran or Riyadh? I'm afraid they're going to get people of the region to destroy the region. Well, it is interesting to note that people in the Trump administration keep pointing the finger at Tehran, even though in Iran there seems to be an effort to liberalize, at least there's been some success of the opposition, in that exact regard, but we're acting as though all the terrorism in the world is financed by Tehran. Well, it ain't. Another weird thing about, you know, cutting off Qatar was that, well, the main U.S. base in that region of the world is in Qatar, and 
Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and three other Arab nations cut diplomatic and transport ties with Qatar without first alerting the United States. They, they cited Qatar's support for Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, it was interesting to note that there was an election in Egypt some time ago, and the victor belonged to the Muslim Brotherhood, after which there was a military coup and he was removed. So maybe that is why Egypt isn't so keen about Qatar supporting that group. And it, it might be noted that in this break that took place, President Trump took credit for it. He tweeted, So good to see the Saudi Arabia visit with the king and 50 countries already paying off. They said they would take a hard line on funding extremism and all references was, and all reference was pointing to Qatar. It should be added that these tweets shocked foreign policy experts in Congress and the State Department. As we noted, Qatar is an important U.S. ally and spent more than a billion dollars building the largest U.S. base in the Middle East. We do have to pause and note that, you know, after the president was giving an elaborate red carpet reception in Riyadh, where he announced that $110 billion arms deal with Saudi King Salman, he also helped launch a new global center to combat, quote, extremist ideology, unquote. Addressing the premiers of about 50 Muslim nations, Trump described Islam as, quote, one of the world's great faiths, unquote. All right, we got to uh, take a break here in a minute or two. Let, let's do that obituary of former Chico resident and international arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi. His obituary notes that Khashoggi knew how to live the high life. At the peak of his career in the 1970s, the flamboyant Saudi arms dealer owned three huge yachts, three opulently refitted private jets, and more than a dozen homes, including a 180,000-acre ranch in Kenya and a Manhattan residence made up of 16 knocked-through apartments. He partied with Cary Grant and Elizabeth Taylor. He kept an Indian Swami on call as an advisor and lavished jewels and furs on his numerous young mistresses. Time estimated in 1987 that Khashoggi spent $250,000 a day to maintain his lifestyle. But his business empire began to crumble in the late 1980s, and he spent the last two decades of his life fighting off creditors. Born in Mecca, Khashoggi was, as we mentioned, the son of one of the Saudi king's personal physicians. He attended a top boarding school in Egypt and went on to study at California State University, Chico. He dropped out at age 21 after brokering the sale of $3 million worth of U.S. trucks to Egypt. Khashoggi soon became the Saudi conduit for Rolls-Royce, Chrysler, and other Western car firms before branching out to defense and aviation. As the Saudis expanded their military, Khashoggi became their principal link to the American arms industry, said the New York Times. While his other business ventures, including farms in Brazil and, and a Paris fashion house, stumbled, Khashoggi's arms deals made him the personification of behind-the-scenes international power. But as oil prices dropped in the 1980s and Arab demand for weaponry declined, Khashoggi found he was being bypassed by other arms buyers and sellers. And his reputation suffered when he was exposed as a middleman in the 1986 Reagan administration Iran-Contra scandal, which of course, as you'll recall, is the scheme to sell arms to Iran and divert the funds to the Nicaraguan rebels. Khashoggi became persona non grata in the arms world after being charged in the U.S. with fraud and racketeering. Gee, in the arms business? Hard to imagine. 
but it was noted that despite losing his $4 billion fortune, much of it in a massive divorce settlement with his first wife, Khashoggi had no regrets. What did I do wrong? Nothing, he said. I behaved unethically for ethical reasons. Well, there you go. If you're going to behave unethically, we suggest you only do it for ethical reasons. Can't say I ever crossed paths with the illustrious Mr. Khashoggi or even his wife who did so well in divorce settlement. But a friend of mine, while shopping on Rodeo Drive down in Beverly Hills, did chance to encounter the then Mrs. Khashoggi and noted that she was a woman of stunning beauty. And uh, for all we know, she still is and has plenty of dough to buy all the oil of Olay she needs to maintain her skin in the condition that invites envious looks from others. Let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax.